0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Abiera, an inmate at the California State Prison San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San death row and without a gang without a group of people around me. It was
1: just... Soon after you went into to be on death row Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston.
0: And I am William Noguera.
1: And today we're going to be talking about Harold Shipman, who is a killer who might have the most kills, like, of anyone in history. Uh, It's just he did it kind of a different way, and we're going to get into the details of Harold Shipman. Before that, we do appreciate you guys following us on Instagram, and facebook at death row diaries if you have any questions for bill who's currently on death row in san quentin prison send us a message and we will address those questions that you can't get answered anywhere else lastly check out our patreon page that is patreon.com death row diaries where you'll get exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else and that's by subscribing and becoming a patron Supporting the show. We do appreciate all of you guys. We've just started rolling that out, but we've had great support so far. And, again, we do appreciate it. So, Bill, Harold Shipman. Are there a lot of people in the medical field that kill? I guess, do, do serial killers often kill so clinically as this guy?
0: Yeah, no, this is kind of a unique bug, unique insect, as I like to call these guys, because, as you mentioned, he doesn't kill like most syrup, they they strangle, they're very intimate, they stab, they shoot. This guy, he's known as Dr. Death, the angel of death, the good doctor. And, you know, barring speculation, like everyone uh, seems to like to do with Jack the Ripper, this guy was actually a practicing Doctor, and um, yeah, his method of killing was to inject his patients little by little, and basically kill them with morphine. That was his his uh, his way of killing. Very clinical, uh, no struggle. The person just went kind of to sleep, and that's how he did it.
1: And if you were inclined to do this, why is a different story different conversation which we'll get to but if you wanted to do this and imagine how easy it would be and that's why he got away with 250 people well
0: yeah he there's speculation that he could he killed over 400 people um because they started looking at all the deaths that he was the signing doctor to the guy who ordered the cremations so they're they're comfortable saying he killed about 260 people and these are the ones are able to investigate and tie to him but of all of his patients he had more than 450 patients that died under his care so yeah this guy uh not as glamorous as what people call serial killers or strangling raping pillaging that kind of guy no this guy is a very quiet the, the murders are not salacious not in any way, shape, or form uh, brutal attacks. It's an injection to the arm, and he's the perfect man to administer it because he is their doctors.
1: Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of doctors. I know that most of them are good people and all, but they all have a certain demeanor that uh, rubs me the wrong way. And it's probably because they've seen open body parts, you know, they have bone saws and, I don't know, they're just a little too comfortable around uh, around blood for a normal person, in my opinion. <clears throat> they think that you may be confusing Dr. Jekyll and Mr.
0: Hyde with, uh, with most people, but in this case right here, we do have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde rolled into one guy.
1: So he's an Englishman, uh, a chap who is his friends call him Fred Shipman, and he's born in Nottingham. Nottingham, sure. And is there anything about this guy's upbringing that would explain anything about this?
0: No. This guy is, has not been abused. He, he doesn't torture animals. He doesn't do any these things that are the, I guess, the, the, the red light or the, the highlight in a child's life where you would say that this kid is bent the wrong way, something's wrong with this guy, with with uh, shipments different. The only thing that happened in his life that was very traumatic was that his mother was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he volunteered to oversee his mother's care. Now, this is where we started, you know, we can inject, no pun intended, why he does what he does, and it is that his mother has to be injected with morphine to help her with pain. This is in the early '60s, and he watches his mother. He watches his mother basically fade away, uh, and in 1963, she dies while he's caring for her. So this is the only lead that we have to explain what he does my position is that he didn't have any power to save his mother obviously he's very close to him he loved his mother but he didn't have the power to save her so death for him because he's wired a certain way already from birth death becomes the ultimate form of control he controls life and death which he could not do with his mother And and this is build him at a very early age. But, I mean, intelligent guy. uh, He graduates from school. He attends medical school. He marries a woman, his wife, uh, at 19 years of age. She's only 17 at the time, within five months. So once he's married within five months, she's pregnant with her first child, and he is now attending medical school. He's going to become a doctor. And by uh, 1974, he has joined a practice, he has overseen the care of many patients, but he himself becomes addicted to the painkiller, Tefadine. He begins to forge prescriptions to feel and fuel his know It's expensive, but he has the ability to do so. Um, but his doctors or his partners realize what's going on and they force him to leave the practice and he enters a drug rehab, which at one point then he is convicted of eight separate um, crimes related to drugs. But he goes to the rehab and he comes out supposedly okay and within a couple of years, he then opens his own practice. And it's in Donnybrook. It's called Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde. And he begins doing what he normally does. He is considered a very good doctor. He's attentive to his patients. He cares for them. He listens to them. And they say, on all accounts, he's a great doctor. He's a good doctor. Well,. <laughs> you know it's it's one thing being a good, good doctor another thing is when your patients start dying at a high rate and that's exactly what
1: starts happening so at least there is some connection with the morphine he's an iv drug user he's an addict um, it's not like a, there's there's a variable there that at least connects these right absolutely Yeah, and I think it all stems
0: from, it's exactly how he feels. I believe it comes from the emotional tie to his mother. He saw his mother being injected to help her, and the drug leak didn't help her, it killed her. And I believe that's where this comes from, this control. Because, look, he's not a mass murderer, he's not just a killer. This doctor, Harold Shipman, is a serial killer. And the reason he is a serial killer is because he does it for control. It's, it's a psychological gratification that he gets when he kills his patients. It's the ultimate control. And control doesn't have to be a sexual thing like a lot of serial killers, although we, we do see it a lot. He's different. He's that insect that we normally don't see. There, there have been other ones. They're mostly women. And let me say that so it's very clear. Most angels of death, and that's what they call these people who are care providers, doctors that inject and kill that way, they're mostly women. He, however, is a man, and his numbers explode very quickly, and suspicion, obviously, arises because of that. Let me call right back. Thank you for using Global Tail Link.
1: Hi, Matt. Yes, yeah, so you'll have to forgive me. I'm a little uninformed on this, but I know that you know it uh, backwards and forwards. Is there a debate as to whether or not he's a serial killer? Because based on what you just told me, it seems like he's the most obvious serial killer, like of all time.
0: Well, it's true, but I've I've always called it a question. Some of these so-called experts position what a serial killer and what is not a serial killer. You know, they always call people like um, the guy we spoke of not too long ago, Doctor H. H. Holmes. They called him a serial killer. He was not a serial killer. Actually, they called him the first American serial killer. And well, at least to me, it's obvious he was not. And he was also a doctor, but he killed for money. Harold Shipman killed for the emotional gratification and control that he got from this. So, you know, we're we're in 1991 already, and this guy uh, he's on his own practice, and he's already, it's been speculated that he's killed 20 people by this time. When he opens his clinic, he's already killed 20 people. And we know this later because he began to investigate all the things he's done and his his, uh, patients. So, Suspicion comes up, and, and people are asking the obvious questions that normally doctors don't have this high rate of death. And his patients seem to be in pretty good health, but there were elderly people, of course, so anything could happen. So an investigation is uh, launched by law enforcement, and within six months, they clear him. No wrongdoing has happened. And he continues with his practice. And But there's whispering in this town. Uh, this, this, this is not Los Angeles. This is a pretty small area, high where he is, has his practice. And, you know, you have the most unlikely source that brings suspicion again to this guy. And it comes from a taxi driver. And let me explain. So the taxi driver, he has been bringing these patients to him for some time. And he has 40, 45 patients that are always taking a taxi to this guy's clinic. In a relatively short time, the taxi driver is losing fares because all the patients are dying. Out of 40 patients, like 23 are dead within six months. And This guy goes to the police department and says, hey, what's going on here? All these patients are dying, and they're all patients of Harold Shipman. Again, he's a taxi driver. No one's really paying a lot of attention to this guy, and nothing is made of it. But this guy, he's killing between three and four patients a month. That's a high rate. And it brings a lot of interest to this guy.
1: A lot. Yeah, and you would have to think that the rumor mill and just the the stories getting around and stuff, which turned out to be true, by the way, you know, that might include the fact that this guy was a drug addict and that he had committed these crimes associated with being a drug addict, but he had stolen drugs through the medical profession. And, you know, I'm not judging all drug addicts, but that already shows that he's willing to abuse um, the position, right?
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things that the taxi driver, whose name is John Shaw, he continues to push it because he has been observing Harold Shipman for a while. And remember, this guy is a very elegant guy. He's well-mannered, very educated. He has an excuse for everything. If a patient dies, the patient died of old age. And most of his patients are old. Actually, all of them are old except for, I believe, two they are in their 40s, and there is speculation that he also killed a child of four months of age. So, you know, these investigations don't go anywhere. And he continues to kill. And I, I understand that for the audience, this isn't like what you would say the most exciting killer was. You, you can't name like one victim and he was taken out and cut in half with a hacksaw and, you know, the intros were on the ceiling. No, this guy is very clinical. There's nothing spectacular about this guy in the way he kills. But this is the reason that he's so prolific. It doesn't attract attention whatsoever. So... We fast forward, and this guy, by by 1998, he has a kill rate or a, a kill count of over 260 people that he's already killed. And what brings police to his home or his doorstep is that Kathleen Grundy, who, you know, who is one of Shipman's patients, suddenly dies. And he is the last person to see her alive. But obviously, he's her doctor. He also signs her death certificate. And he has a record that he gives, he gives the record to his daughter, to her daughter, That records her death as being that of old age. But his daughter, her daughter, is actually a lawyer. Her name is Angela Woodruff. And she becomes very suspicious right away. Her mother seemed to be in good health. But there seems to be something wrong here. The paperwork doesn't work out. Things don't look good. And she goes to the police department to to get an investigation going. And nothing comes of it at first, but then the lawyer for the estate contacts the daughter, who's also a lawyer, and shows her the will. And the will is very strange because it basically excludes everybody from Miss Grundy's life and names Harold Shipman as the benefactor of all of her money, which is about... 380,000 pounds, which is a lot of money. So there's a lot of things to take into consideration here. One of them being that of all of Harold Shipman's murders, this one he didn't do as a serial killer. So let me explain. Harold Shipman was about to retire, and this was a nice little mess egg. That he could have taken into retirement with him and helped them throughout his life. Three hundred and eighty plus thousand pounds is a lot of money. Cash. So he killed Kathleen Grundy for the benefits that she had. This is the only kill that he had that he did, not for for gratification control psychological ratification he did it because he wanted the money and that was his undoing he goes to the daughter she's a lawyer two lawyers talk they look at the signature doesn't match her mother's then she goes again to the police department and now they are suspicious they decide to exhume the body and they find traces of diamorphine. You know, that's used to control pain. Shootman comes back and says, well, yeah, she was an addict. So he's making excuses. And then he shows the police department his computer journal to kind of prove that he had written these things down, that she was abusing drugs. And it turns out that they find out that, of course, those entries came in after her death. So he was already kind of stopping. The investigation, he was making things up. He had a purpose. He had a reason. He was doing all these things. So the problem then is that they got him. They know. Him. They understand that this guy is doing it. He killed this woman, and they began to investigate all these happenings in, by September 7th, 1998. So they investigate only a few years months and a few years and they find 15 murders between 1995 and 1998 or deaths that fit what he had done before, which is the morphine, they exude bodies, there's traces. So they charged him with 15 murders
1: and he's arrested. So he got incredibly brazen. Like, first of all, Just from an anecdotal perspective, an empirical perspective, all of your patients are dying. Okay, well, that's hard to prove because they're old or whatever, but you're the subject of rumors, and then you have this woman who's in good standing with her family and not that she's still in contact with her daughter, and she leaves a small fortune to her doctor and excludes the rest of her family? Like How often does that happen?
0: Oh, it does and, and that was a big problem right there. Huge problem. So, you know, of course, the police department is investigating and they find a bunch of... They realize that he had been signing all of the death certificates for all these people. And the one thing that he didn't do with Grundy was that most of them he had cremated. He had him cremated. So you couldn't really find any traces of... This drug or that drug. But a few people he couldn't do that to. So the police were up and exhumed those bodies, and they found that the person died of a heart attack. The person died of, you know, all these different fabricated medical reasons. And he was making up the medical history, so it was the perfect cover for him. And... You know, a lot of the cases, he made up witnesses. And they go investigate, that person wasn't there. They said, I wasn't there. Well, Dr. Shipman wrote this. I don't care what he wrote. I wasn't there. I wasn't a witness to the death. So they begin, it begins to unravel. Everything unravels. And in October the 5th, 1999, he goes to trial for the 15 murders and one forgery. Because, as as I mentioned, the forgery was the will and the one patient that he Murder that wasn't about psychological gratification, etc., was uh, Miss Grundy. But look, the truth is that serial killers can have multiple reasons why they kill. A good example is Richard Ramirez. He's a serial killer. There's no way they have butts about it. His big thing was control. He did it through violence, through through brutal sexual acts. But ultimately, it was control. But while he was there, he helped himself to jewelry, money, and he was breaking into habits to continue to kill and support himself. So, you, a serial killer can have two reasons. In this case, at least in the last case with Shipman, he had dual reasons. Yeah, he still did it for control, but he helped himself to a small fortune, as you mentioned. Yeah, interesting
1: that. I mean, so 459 people died under his care. I'm sure you could write off a few. Is, is that just being coincidence? But these are elderly people. His elderly mom, you know, passes away, and he's got something in his head about these IV drugs. But is he picking old people because there's some psychological gratification or connection to the mom, or is it just that they're more likely to die and no one's gonna kick up a fuss about it.
0: Yeah, pretty much. It's the perfect uh, situation for him. It's like you put a, a fish in water. This guy was perfect for this. And, and he doesn't look like you would imagine a serial killer looks like. Glasses, married, has four children, has a nice home. It's a doctor. So, they convict him. The jury comes back and convicted, he does have, by the way, an excuse for every one of the homicides. And he maintained throughout the trial and after the trial, while he's in prison, uh, of his innocence. And he maintained this. He's not like these other serial killers who kill and they like uh, Edmund and uh, other serial killers. that love to talk about what they did, and how they did it, and they like the attention. When they convict him, they send him to prison. He talks to nobody. He maintains his innocence, and he tries to just blend in with uh, no interviews, nothing. He refuses to speak to all people. Um, I'll play
1: you, back. Okay, hey, man. So how common is that among serial killers? I feel like from talking to you, all these guys want attention, even if it's in the form of defending themselves. You know, some some of them no one cares about, so they don't get to do interviews. But how common is that that he doesn't want to?
0: It's not very common. There are a number of serial killers that I have interacted with that I've studied, and the majority of them like the attention. Um, sure, during the trial they say I'm innocent, I didn't do it, but when they get to prison, they begin these these salacious Relationships with women, men, groupies, death row groupies that come to see them, and kind of worship them for who they are and what they've done. There are exceptions uh, here on death row. The majority of serial killers want the attention. You see them in the newsroom; they're called every weekend. They're beautiful women come see them. They marry them. Some are not so beautiful, but that's a different story. But there are a couple here one in particular that is kind of the the golden uh, you know i don't know that the, the golden standard for serial killers but this guy talks to nobody and that is randy craft they call him the scorecard killer he doesn't talk to anybody a lot of people make up stuff about him so they can you know find uh, some type of connection to him some people write him as you know just normal people like how you doing hoping to get a letter from him. He never writes anybody. So, and there's a couple of them. They're they're few and far between, but there are here. And Shipman seems to be the same type of guy. And and look, he's different, he's a doctor, he's a well-respected guy in the community, at least until he gets convicted. So, I don't think he wants to ruin his reputation. With this guy, it's all about control. That's the most important thing with him. You know, he, he wants control over death couldn't control it with his mother so the only way to control it was to be able to bring death or either stop it. See with this guy, the way he's wired, he can't give you life but if he controls death, meaning well I'm gonna kill you today, he's controlling death. If he decides well I'm not gonna kill you today, then he brings life. You see how that works in his head? That's what this guy's doing. He controls death and life by his decision making. That's twisted, but that's how this guy thinks. That's how this guy's wired, and that's the psychology of Harold Shipman.
1: Yeah, a lot of doctors do have a messiah complex, and that's why a lot of them want to deliver babies too, because they think you know they're bringing life into this world. Like, <laughs> they sort of are, so, you anyway. know. So we're controlled. We're, we're, we're bringing out dodges and
0: liver children as seroconferential seroconfers. We'll have to check that out to investigate man, Bill's investigation into the likelihood that dodges and
1: liver babies are actually serial killers in the next episode of Death Row Diaries. <laughs> well, you know, cop and criminal, <laughs> all part of the same, kind of on the same spectrum. So when this guy is administering this morphine, is he getting the same physiological response, the same reward as uh, Richard Ramirez, who's stabbing someone with a knife.
0: Absolutely. It's the control factor. And I would, I would go as far as guessing or speculating that Harold Shipman enjoys it more, and I'll tell you why. Richard Ramirez mixed violence, brutality with the control factor. She was controlling with the brutality. With Harold Shipman his control was completely in a controlled situation. He administered it and he sat back and he was able to observe and enjoy the death as it took over the victim. That's a huge control there to administer something and you're not actually in the act beating the person or raping the person no, you're sitting back and you're observing the whole situation take place before your eyes. That is huge. That is like the ultimate control where you can witness it from afar
1: and be right at the same time, be right there. And, and he could almost bask in it, you know, and, and be immersed in this experience because I imagine it could take several hours if you wanted to draw it out, Right.
0: Sure, absolutely. He could administer a little bit. When a person begins to come out of it, administer more. This is, yes, you're absolutely correct. We weren't there. We don't know. But are these a possibility? When a person does something so much and he is in that profession, he knows how many CCs of that particular drug it will do to a person's body, how they'll respond to it. These are his patients. He knows what kind of tolerance they have. All of those things take into factor. And guess what?
1: he controls it all. That's huge. I wonder if he justified it to himself by saying that they weren't feeling any pain, because as perverse as it is, that's also true.
0: It is true, but I don't think that's the thing with him. His thing was control. Whether they suffer or they didn't suffer, I don't think played a part in this. His whole gratification was on the fact that he could bring death, or give you life. That's it, right there. In a nutshell. What
1: well, do you think when he was charged and going through these court proceedings? Like he maybe thought, oh, "I'm not like these other guys. I'm not like these guys that use guns and knives. I'm more sophisticated. I'm a learned man. I'm, I'm different from them."
0: Oh sure. Oh of course. And it's really true. He didn't use guns. He didn't. He didn't consider himself a, a criminal, and well, a lot of people probably didn't believe he was a criminal either because of how he did things. But he was, and obviously he's very calculated because he then does what, what other serial killers that we've talked about. Have done. So in January of two thousand four, he is fifty eight years old. He uses the bed sheets from his. Bed. He ties them to the window bars, and he hangs himself. There was no provocation for this. There was you know, nothing happened. His wife didn't leave him. Uh, you know, he didn't become crippled. What happened was that he had a policy for his pension. That if he died before the age of sixty his wife would receive full benefits and a full pension. He killed himself to give his wife and family the full benefits of his pension, but at the same time, he also was able to administer death for the last time upon himself, therefore controlling the narrative, controlling death and life, because he had decided to live and he would have given himself life. He chose death, So as he was passing away, choking to death from the cell bars, he had a smile on his face because he controlled himself and got
1: him off. So he's thinking, ultimately, I pulled one over on them. My wife's getting my pension. They can't take that from me. I'm the winner. I'm smarter than everyone else, right? Yeah, pretty much. And
0: um, and he gets away with it. His wife obviously collects the pension. And supposedly he's he's put to rest and, and and this ends the the Harold Shipman story all contraire, Montfrer things change in 2001 law enforcement reopened the case they called the Shipman inquiry and they concluded that he actually killed 218 people but then a couple of years later, there's another report, 2005, and they then have been going through records. There's, there's a whole team going through stuff. It's further concluded that between 1971, this is nineteen how early he started, 1971 and 1998, that 459 people died under his care. 260 of them are confirmed kills by him. And then in the same year, because of all this stuff going on and people understand what this guy, who he was, the monster he was, they um, they make a garden and it, it's open. It's called the Garden of Tranquility. It's kind of a, a, uh, a testimonial maybe to his victims. And um, that's basically the end of the Harold shipping case because of uh, uh, not many people speak about this guy, which is kind of interesting. Because he was so clinical. No one looks at this guy as the monster. Had some syrup to strangle people, picked 200 people. We'd think of him as a monster. I mean, well, he was a monster, but we would think of him in more general terms. But this guy kind of slips to the cracks because he's British, has a British accent, gentleman, ladies and gentlemen. He's probably one of the most prolific killers in the history. At least modern history that we've
1: uh, come across. I wonder how it would have manifested itself if he hadn't come from a fairly privileged upbringing. And not saying that's everything, he also, you know, earned his degree and was a doctor. But how would it have turned out if he hadn't become a doctor?
0: In my uh, belief, in my position, Harold Shipman would have killed regardless whether he was a doctor or not. I think that his his mother dying the way she did and she was administering drugs gave him, I don't really want to call it the idea, but the solution to controlling death. Could his mother have triggered it? Sure. If she would not have died and she was an abusive mother and it was a bad family life, Harold Shipman would have probably begun exhibiting different um, eye-raising actions, possibly charging animals. It could have been lighting fires. But ultimately, Harold Shipman would have taken that step to becoming a serial killer at some point. could have earlier come in later, but it would have happened. These, these men or women are wired a certain way. They deal with what they're going through by killing. They deal with it in that extreme because that's the way they're wired. It, 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 like many people go through abuses. A lot of them do. But our response is to drink, to use drugs. Many become come by and rob banks. But to actually start killing people, not just one person because you lose a temper or two people because they stole from you or you were, you were robbing a bank, but to come back each and every time to murder, to murder again and again and again, you have to be wired for that. No other explanation exists, and but I, I can't tell you what is wrong with them, but that's the way they're
1: wired. Yeah, so what do you think this guy's personal life was like? Did he have any friends? Is he what are his dinner table conversations like with his wife when every day he comes home, like, Oh, I, I lost another patient? Is there an awkward silence? Is there a suspicion? Or do you think he just held all this stuff really close to the vest?
0: Because the man who killed him very controlled, clinical. I think that his home life was probably a reflection of that as well. He probably kept his home life to himself. I mean, I'm sorry, his, uh, his uh, career to himself. He didn't speak about patients to his wife, especially his kids. I'm actually a little surprised that he wasn't abusive towards his kids. I- I'm a little surprised that he wasn't. In most cases where people are all about control, they want to control every situation. And one of the, the easiest your home life, your wife, your children, what they do, how they do it, when they do it that, those are classic examples of a person that's in control. Um, He's—he was different. As I said, he, he was an insect that I—I I, I had a lot of pleasure in studying him. Uh, he was just different. However, you can draw the conclusion, or draw the conclusion that because he was so controlled and because he's satisfied. That control so thoroughly by killing so often that he didn't have to control his family. He didn't have a need for it because he was ultimately in complete control of all of those patients, which was over 400 people, and possibly he killed that many. So I think that's probably his home life was very controlled. Um, I'm sure he smiled a lot. I'm sure he got along with people, and his his life in the office reflects that. Everybody says he was very uh, charismatic, very uh, attentive, attentive uh, very caring. So I don't think his life at home
1: would be any different than that. So we can diagnose this guy, amongst whatever else, as being a sociopath, right? Well, completely,
0: sure. He had no social, I mean, sorry, he had no um, empathy. He had, he had no sympathy. He, had, he didn't feel that he was... The killings he was doing didn't affect him. Yeah, he complete turned it off. Yeah, he's a sociopath, complete and you know psychotic in a way. You know, there's a pathological, there is a pathological um, influence there. He just
1: kept it very controlled, though. Yeah, when I meet people, I can kind of tell if they're a sociopath. I'm not saying I can tell that they're a serial killer or an aspiring serial killer. A lot of times, I label it as like, "Oh, that guy's a child molester." Just because I, what I mean by that is just that, you know, he's shifty and I wouldn't trust him alone with anyone. But do you think you'd be able to tell? Like, I think I could tell, but maybe I could be fooled, too. Like, I don't know how many people have fooled me. You know, just people I've run into. Yeah, I mean, look, these guys cover themselves very well. They're very um, good at what they do. Some serial are easy
0: to spot. You can just by meeting them you know something's wrong and after a while of serving them you can probably tell what kind of person they are. This guy, as I said, is a little different. He's that insect that you want to study because it would be virtually impossible to spot this guy. But I, I deal with criminals every day and I've dealt with serial probably more than anybody else has well ever, because I live with them and I study them. This guy, he's perplexing. You look at him, you talk to him, he gives no indication of what he's about. And there's no uh, red flares going up or red flags that indicate that there's something wrong with this guy. He's very good at what he did, extremely good. And he doesn't exhibit any other criminal activity in his uh, life. Like H.H. Holmes, he was a doctor, but he exhibited shifty character. He was a very shifty character. He exhibited, um, you know, the, the criminal mentality. This guy doesn't whatsoever till the end when he kills Miss Grundy for that money in her will. That's what he shows and demonstrates
1: um, that side of
0: him. Otherwise, you never would have seen it.
1: I bet this happened at one point. Some guy was like, Shipman, I don't, I don't really like that guy. I don't trust him. There's something wrong with him. And the other guy said, well, he's a doctor. And then he said, oh, okay, well, that explains it. I and mean, he's fine. Because um, <laughs> you can be yeah, cold be and surgical and weird. And, you know, it's like, well, you, you don't know what that guy's seen. Uh, So did this lead to any kind of reforms? Like, a female friend of mine was telling me, because I don't know about this stuff, that When you get a gynecological exam, if the doctor's a man, or I think even if not, there always has to be two people in the room to make sure that nothing weird goes on and and to protect the doctors as well from being accused of stuff. Um, And I don't know how it works with sedation. I don't know much about the medical community, but I would think maybe you shouldn't be allowed to sedate someone just alone without another person there.
0: In this country, of course, doctors are very precautious because of lawsuits, and there's the the, the whole deal of, he touched me inappropriately, so they usually have a nurse in the room with them when they're seeing the doctor, unless, I'm sure, maybe a gynecologist is probably different, maybe, I don't know, I've never been in a room with a gynecologist while he's doing his needs. However, this guy was more a personal doctor. He oversaw the care of elderly people, so I think there's a little bit different. But, yes, in the United States, I would I would do it. If I was a doctor, I'd have a nurse with me at all times. So, you know, you have people that are dishonest. They could say, I want to sue this guy. And the best way to do it is say, he touched me inappropriately. So, yeah, I don't know in other countries, but he was a very personal doctor. And he gives the feel of almost that country doctor, right? The guy that comes in, administers some
1: drugs, he goes home. A little bit different. Yeah. Right, right, do you think he continued abusing drugs? I've heard morphine is great as a substance. I've never used it. I wouldn't advise using it, but I've just heard from people that have used it that it's like an amazing feeling. Um, do you think he was still doing that, and could that have you know contributed to him essentially losing his grip or becoming more and more brazen and and all that? Well, there's no indication.
0: There's there's no um, talk about it. Uh, So I would guess that he was not abusing the drugs. I mean, It's possible, but I don't think so. And it's really difficult for a person who is an addict to just chip on the side, do a little bit here and stop. That's very difficult for people to do. But it is kind of strange that he is working with the drug that he was actually hooked with, and he's killing people with it. So, yeah, there's kind of a love-hate relationship probably there. He hates the drug when it did to him, how it caused him to become, uh, you know, kicked out of his first practice, and and he uses it to kill people. So, kind of a love-hate
1: relationship with the drug he uses, with the instrument that he uses to kill. Yeah. Yeah, I got in a conversation with a friend of mine recently, and it was one of those arguments where both people were wrong, and I guess both people were right, but She was going to give blood. She gives blood every... I think you're allowed to do it every two weeks. And, you know, because she's a good person and she wants there to be uh, extra blood for blood donations. And she said, do you want to go do it with me? And I said, absolutely not. There's not a chance in hell I'm doing that. And she said, why not? And I said, well, you know, I'm sure it happens that they use the wrong needle and then someone gets infected with hepatitis or something accidentally and she said well you're an idiot you know you really think that that happens regularly and i said well do you think it's never happened and then (laughs) that was it so like yeah i was right and she was right i'm i'm not reasonable but i'm also right for your health or regarding your health you have to be extra careful
0: there have been cases, and I've seen on the news before, where someone was given a transfusion of blood and they contracted AIDS. It's happened. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. But there is that slight chance of it happening. I can see your point. But then I can also see her point where, look, she wants to give. It's her choice. Every per- person should have the right to do what they feel is correct. I mean, if that's her way of helping society in some way, hey, more power to you.
1: I think Harold Shipman should be discussed more. I don't understand why he's pushed under the rug. I mean, this isn't sports. Like we're looking at his victim count, you know, like, Oh, we should talk about this guy, but just the way that he did it, the fact that he was cloaking it and, and just doing it in this setting that we've all been in. Like to me, this is scarier than almost anyone else we've talked about. Cause I don't like going to doctors. I rarely go, but This scares the hell out of me. Yeah, you're right. But but
0: let's look at it in this terms. You know, everybody likes the bad guy who does it with violence. Not that they like it, but that's exciting. Bonnie and Clyde. Billy the Kid. Jesse James. He robbed, he killed, you know, Wyatt Earp. Doc Holliday. These are very exciting. You know, Al Capone. On the other hand, we don't look at white-collar criminals in the same light. You know, guys that do Ponzi schemes. They're not excited. It's very clinical. It's done with numbers. It's done with paper. This is something almost like that. People are not so excited about this guy because he didn't brutalize it. He didn't chop any heads off. It's just he administered a drug. It's very clinical. Nothing exciting about that. But you're right. This guy's one of the biggest monsters we've ever come across. And that's why, for me, it's so... I don't want to say exciting, I'm not getting excited early. For me, it's very interesting how he worked and why he did what he did. And of course, so I can talk about it with you. So yeah, this guy is uh, he's a monster. He's a very quiet monster, but nonetheless, he kills very proficiently. And one of the most prolific
1: killers in modern history. Yeah, I love your blue collar, white collar, criminal analogy because it fits into this in a few different ways. It's that's really good. I think another thing is that no nickname. And as we were talking, I came up with Jack the Dripper. <laughs> yeah, okay,
0: Jack the Dripper. Yeah, well, I guess you could. well, he did have nicknames. He was called Dr. Death. He was Doctor Death. A doctor. The good doctor. And he was also known as the Angel of Death. So he did have some nicknames, but it wasn't like, look, the media picks up on these nicknames because as the person's killing and doing all these robberies and killings, he's murdering, he's raping, he's cutting off heads, like Richard Ramirez, he's shooting, he's killing, they're looking for him like a man chase. You have the FBI, you have different departments, and the media comes up with a name, the Night Stalker. So, yeah, that's a nickname. This guy, no one knew what he was doing till the very end. They figured it out. They're like, "Oh my God!" And then, of course, they start calling him the age of Death. And all stuff, but there's nothing excited about this guy's case. And that's why it's kind of slipped the cracks, and we don't talk about it that much. But he was one of the most prolific, if not the most prolific, serial we have in modern time.
1: Well, it's fascinating as always. Until next time. Oh, by the way, if you have any better nicknames than Dr. Death and the Angel of Death, which are okay, they're kind of generic, but I do think that if he had a better, more clever, more frightening nickname, then maybe there would be more dialogue about this guy. So if you got any suggestions, go ahead and send us uh, a message. But until then, I've been Matt Ralston.
0: And I'm William DeGuerre. Be safe, be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. See you next time.